This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and you have found yourself in the American Southwest. This is part four of our series over the Dominguez and Escalante expedition of 1776. If you haven't heard the other episodes, I do suggest you go back and start from the very beginning. We last left our intrepid explorers at the edge of America's Great Basin, with its many mountain ranges and broad, hot, and dry valleys, and the winter was rapidly approaching. As they took stock of themselves and their supplies, and as they looked over the horizons at the snow-topped peaks, the Dominguez and Escalante expedition of 1776 realized they had only two options. Continue westward towards California and Monterey through an unknown land, or head back head back home, also through an unknown land. At the end of the last episode, they decided it was time to head back home to Santa Fe, all the way in New Mexico, instead of continuing on. But, the decision was not universally praised by our team. So, let's jump back in and follow this grand adventure through the American Southwest. When they began heading back home in that same southerly direction on the morning of October 9th, the ground still was not hard enough. After all that snow and all that awful weather, the ground still wasn't hard enough for fast or effective travel. So they only made it about 15.6 miles. Still not too bad in my opinion. On the 10th, they crested a hill, saw some further distant snow-covered mountains, and they came to some sulfurous hot springs before deciding to camp with 15.6 miles under their belt yet again. The following day, though, the decision to turn back and its repercussions would finally halt the crew. It turns out, not everyone had wanted to give up on their perilous, yet exciting, journey. By the 11th, it became clear that a few in the party, specifically Don Bernardo Mierra y Pacheco, Don Joaquin Lane, the blacksmith, and the interpreter, Andres Munez, these three were not happy that they just abandoned their goal of reaching California. Despite the fathers explaining to them that it was indeed God's will. Plus, the Padres said, look how far we've already traveled, and look at how many people we met whose souls were willing to be saved. And plus, Joaquin, the young Laguna Ute, the, the guy that is still with us, his soul is for sure saved once we return and we can baptize him. It's just better we head home now. But ultimately, the friars were adamant that it was now God's will that they should turn around. D and E essentially said, look, we're willing to die for this trip. Trust us. But 
God told us we had to turn around. So that's that end of discussion. As we know, Franciscan friars in the American Southwest are often very willing to die, which again, they would have no doubt done if they continued on that western path they were traveling. At least before they decided to turn back. So despite explaining this to the team, they were still, the team was still quite unhappy, especially those three. So, Dominguez and Escalante let them all ride ahead while the two of them further discussed what on earth to do next. They couldn't ignore the team and their complaints and just keep walking south. They also couldn't allow a mutiny. Apparently, though, while these men were riding ahead, they began scheming and bickering and riling themselves up about how to turn back. To turn back was a mistake. To turn around and betray their goal was unmanly. They really wanted to keep going and explore and find people and lands and make maps and discoveries. You can't blame them, really. But I can't stress this enough. They would not have made it. They didn't know this, though. And according to Escalante, the malcontents had, quote, Grandiose dreams of honors and profit from solely reaching Monterey, and had imparted them to the rest by building castles in the air of the loftiest. End quote. So they were weaving some exaggerated tales. Some exaggerated tales of glory and profit, treasure, that they were no longer going to get. Escalante then wrote how these three were also saying that the fathers were depriving the rest of the expedition of this prosperous future by turning around. Even the servants were seeing dollar signs. Escalante then goes on to write something kind of funny uh, when he explains that a few of them, just a couple days before, had insisted that they get going because they had a lot of ground to cover cover before they reached California. But now, now that they were turning around... Apparently, they, especially Don Bernardo Miera y Pacheco, they were saying, Oh, guys, come on. We'll surely be there in a week's time. Let's just go. The Don, M&P, literally said, Guys, come on. It'll only take a week. Walter Briggs, in his great book, Without Noise of Arms, writes sarcastically about them getting there in a week. Yeah, in a dune buggy, maybe. Escalante then admonished the crew by saying, We told you guys in Santa Fe before we left. We told you that you couldn't come on this trip unless you were willing to follow God's word and listen to us and do nothing for yourselves or for your own glory. Right? Remember when we told you? And you all agreed, yet you still tried to trade with the Indians for your own personal gain. Although he does use the word infidels. He then reminds them that reaching California Monterey so that they may have glory and riches is against not only us, the fathers, the leaders of this journey, but also against your word, and against, most importantly, God. Instead of insisting that God's will be followed, though, and instead of commanding the three to shut up and get in line, which I imagine would have been a tough thing to say to these dons, I mean, it would have been difficult to tell the old, awesome, and wise veterans any of any of those commands. So instead of commanding them, D&E went up to the men, asked them to dismount, and then told them that they were going to cast lots 
to see if they would continue on to Monterey or head back to Santa Fe. In doing this, Escalante wrote, they were showing that they were not despots deciding the fate of the men willy-nilly, but instead, this was God's will, and he would prove it by having the lot drawn that suggested they head back, of course. They'd drawn lots before, remember, a month and a half before this, but that was just to find out what paths to take out of three possible paths. This time, it was deciding the fate of the entire trip. So the fathers put Kosnina, or essentially home, and if theirs was chosen, they'd stay the leader. So if Kosnina was chosen of the lots, then Dominguez and Escalante would stay the expedition's leaders. And Mierre Pacheco put Monterey. And if it was chosen, he would become supreme leader of the expedition, since, quote, he believed it to be so close, and everything started from his ideas. End quote. The footnote of this section in the journal says how the cast lots has caused, quote-unquote, considerable discussion. It goes on to say, They probably put the two names in a hat and drew one out. Some believe they wrote the names on a flat stick and tossed it in the air and followed the route which came out on top. Some cynics have suggested that the two padres, leaving nothing to chance, put two slips in the hat, each with the name Cosninas on it. End quote. I do doubt the last one, since Mierai Pacheco probably wrote it himself and put it in the hat himself. I mean, he was literate. He was a don. In any case, after an exhaustive amount of prayers and recitations and other Catholic stuff I don't understand, they cast the lots. And of course, Cosnina was drawn. Apparently, everyone did finally understand that this was in fact God's will and they quote-unquote heartily accepted it. And the matter was dropped. After the attempted mutiny, the crew actually made good mileage that day with over 26 miles under their belt as they traveled through woods, streams, and a quote-unquote beautiful valley. The writing immediately after the casting of the lots seems to get a little more cheerier. Later in life, though, Don Bernardo Mierra y Pacheco would write to the king of Spain that not reaching Monterey was, quote, to the great sorrow of my heart, end quote. He never did get over it, it seems. You know, I found myself a couple times on trips that weren't working out or adventures that were turning sour, and while it sucks in the moment, it's almost inevitable that once the decision has been made to turn back home or to shorten the trip or alter the plans, it always, immediately after the decision, the trip becomes lighter and more fun and whatever was burdening me just kind of disappears. And often, the best part of the trip is that latter unexpected half after the decision to change it has been made. Well, I imagine the same thing was happening with the Padres. At least, for a while. The westward journey ahead seemed unbelievably difficult and cold and imposing, and it would have been but while the remainder of their journey won't be roses, it feels like it was the right decision. And for men encapsulated by the Holy Spirit and being men of God who have immense faith, trusting in that faith would have no doubt felt relieving. Down the southward road home and toward the Kosninas country of the Havasupai, um, this Kosnina country that won out with God's blessing, 
the men come upon a group of women who scattered at the approaching Spanish. But two of the team ride ahead and detain these scattering women. Quote-unquote, by force. Not sure what that means, but hopefully nothing sinister or painful. Escalante would write, quote, It pained us to see them frightened so much. End quote. Well, yeah. You just rode up on some women on giant beasts and held them by force. Well, after this detaining, and after the women composed themselves of their fright, it also took a moment for the Padres to compose themselves as well. Escalante went out of his way to write of the women's appearance, who were, quote, so poorly dressed that they wore only some pieces of deerskin hanging from the waist, barely covering what one cannot gaze upon without peril. End quote. All right. Behave. After the men had proven they came in peace, the nearly naked women told the Spaniards that yes, we have some people nearby, and also yes, there are some people in the Cosninas country of which you speak of. Then they asked the women to please send their men to the Spanish camp that evening so that they could for sure find out if the river, the Colorado River, was ahead and if they could possibly please get a guide to help them get to it and across it. But they didn't wait for the evening, and instead, Lain and Joaquin caught up with a straggling lad who was brought to their camp hind saddle of Don Lain's horse. This ride was no doubt this young Paiute's first time riding such a beast, which may have scared the living daylights out of him, for back in camp he was so terror-stricken that the fathers called him insane. He kept looking around skittishly and would be frightened with every movement by the Spaniards. And on top of it all, he didn't really speak much, at least at first. But eventually, he would calm down after being given some food and some colored ribbon. I can't help but imagine maybe some smokes were shared as well, as was the custom. Or maybe this young Paiute was too young. They then grilled the young man on where the Costinas were. But uh, no luck there. Probably because this young man and his people called the Havasupai something other than Costinas. The Spaniards then pointed west and northwesterly and asked if any fathers like themselves, obviously they meant Garces, but did any other religious or Spaniards live over yonder in that direction? The reply was a no. A lot of folks live out there, he said, but they're like me, Indians, Paiutes. They then showed him some corn and asked if he'd seen any around, and he replied that he had indeed and he would take them to the little rancheria, where he knew the corn was grown. But he would do that tomorrow. Later on down the road, though, at a little rancho, they came upon an old Indian, a young man, several children, and three women. Escalante would write that they were all very good-looking. From this small band, the Spanish were given some seeds and fruits, and then they presented some beads and hunting knives for anyone interested in taking them to the place where this all-important maize, or corn, was grown. You see, if there are Indians who plant and grow, those Indians must be quote-unquote civilized, and more able to be converted because they are already one step closer to being good citizens. At this questioning of where the corn was grown, 
The old man in the group seized the Spaniards and promised to take them. But they would soon find out this was a ruse. For the frightened old Indian led them to the top of a large hill, where at the roughest part, the earlier terrified young man who'd ridden the horse and the old man they'd just picked up, they both vanished. Escalante writes, We admired their cleverness in having brought us through a place well suited to the sure and free execution of their plan. End quote. That plan was seemingly to allow time for their little band to vanish behind them while they made their escape at the toughest part. Alas, they were guideless yet again. David Roberts has a nice comparison to this little story in his Escalante's Dream. In retrospect, the Padres realized that the very old Paiute had agreed to guide the team just so that his family could make their escape from these terrifying intruders. On a very small scale, the two Paiute guides had performed the same trick as the Turk who led Coronado out onto the plains of Kansas in his vain quest for Kibira. And unlike the Turk, strangled for his treachery, they managed to slip away as the Spaniards struggled with the obstacles of the Black Lava Canyon. End quote. I talked about the Turk, who was really a dark-skinned Pawnee Indian, that the Spaniards felt looked like a Turk, like a Turkish man, an Ottoman. But I talked about him way back in the first episode for this series, if you'll recall. Like the series over the Spanish in the Southwest. I would also like to point out, though, that they also pulled the same trick, these two Indians, they pulled the same trick as had the people of the Southwest on Rivera 11 years before. These Paiutes, when they were talking to the Spaniards, called themselves a name which no longer exists in Paiute, so they probably long ago merged with another band, or they may have gone the way of all the earth. The expedition then passed through white sand and black volcanic rocks. They passed green poplars by rivers, mesquite trees that don't like the cold, and beautifully flowering plants. This led them to reach the conclusion that the cold of winter, the cold they'd been experiencing, had yet to reach this here area. Maybe heading south was the right decision after all. Briggs, Walter Briggs, said or wrote of this quote, Not for nothing do Utahns boast of this region as their Dixie. End quote. Ah, Dixieland. How I miss thee so. While I may live in Southern California for the moment, I am originally from the heart of Dixie, northern Georgia, just below the old and wise Appalachian Mountains. But here in Utah's Dixie, Briggs writes, quote, When your writer, he is referring to himself, when your writer drove through here one mid-December, it was like June in Santa Fe. End quote. Last time I drove through this Dixie, I was chased by winter storms and biting wind with both passes and roads closed all around me. It was a record-breaking winter that I drove through it last March of 23. So our crew was getting a break from the cold that had been afflicting them pretty much since western Colorado, except for their time around Utah Lake. But this would indeed be their last reprieve from winter for the remainder of the trip. At this moment, they were traveling through to the west of, quote, a chain of very high mesas, end quote. 
That would be what we call today the Hurricane Cliffs. And they rise about 1,500 feet above the plain that they were walking through. Briggs writes of this area, One of the nation's longest and most conspicuous fault plains. The Hurricane Cliffs extend from Utah's Markagant Plateau, some 200 miles south, to flank Colorado's Uinkaret Tableland. In primeval upheaval, mountain blocks displaced sedimentary beds from 1,500 feet to as much as 8,000 feet high along their front. End quote. They were essentially passing by Zion National Park, at least the Kolob Canyon western side of it. I have been there with my wife, where we watched the sunset on the red sandstone Colorado Plateau walls, which seemed to stretch forever in both directions. It was absolutely gorgeous and one of my favorite sunsets. And Kolob, if you are curious, is the heavenly kingdom where God resides in the Mormon religion, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In this warm area, which they are enjoying, the D&E crew begin to follow some fresh Indian tracks up some sandy mesas. But they were unable to reach the top, so they slid back down the high, rugged, and rocky ridge. It was tough going. Escalante, at the end of that day's post, the 15th of October, he wrote rather nonchalantly, quote, Tonight, our provisions ran out completely, with nothing left but two little slabs of chocolate for tomorrow. End quote. Apparently, that is all the worry that was awarded that frightening realization. And this camp on October 15th was the farthest west they would go throughout the entire trip. They were 450 miles west of Santa Fe as the crow flies. Yet they had traveled so many more miles than that to get to where they currently were. The following day, they crossed into modern-day Arizona, where they were accosted by eight Indians. Andres Munez told these Indians not to fear, though, and at that they descended their high perch and introduced themselves by holding up strings of beautiful turquoise. I've talked a little bit about turquoise before, and I may have a little episode on it one day. Um, it's ubiquitous within the South American Southwest. I mean, it was traded all throughout this hemisphere, really. Examples of the beautiful stone from the region have been found as far as south as the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. The Maya, it seems, traded for it. Possibly they traded macaw feathers, or even entire macaw birds. But alas, our crew is not there to trade or enrich themselves, remember? So no trading for turquoise would occur. But trading for a guide absolutely would. Unfortunately for our men, neither Joaquin, the young Laguna, nor Andres Munez spoke the language of these Paiutes. So they had to get by using sign language, it seems. And through that sign language, they discovered it was their own corn they had seen up the valley. Although they apparently also grew squash, as we will discover shortly. These American Indians called themselves the Peruses. Briggs writes of this group, quote, Perusi, ethnologists say, is Paiute for White River, the Virgin, because it foams through a canyon at one point. With the Perusis was, quote, one who spoke more of an Arabic tongue, end quote, whom they took to be a Mojave. 
To the Spaniards, Arabic meant any incomprehensible tongue, as in, it's Greek to me. Perhaps he was a go-between trader in coral and seashells. End quote. This Perusi was no doubt a traveler of the region, and the group may have picked up on his knowledge because they would immediately, through their sign language, ask another important question. Where on earth is the Colorado River? The answer came that it was about two days that away straight south, about 50 miles if you look at the map now, except going straight south was not the way at all. Going south would be impossible, actually, because there's no water. And also because the river that away was, according to the local traveler, quote, very much boxed in and very deep and having extremely tall rocks and cliffs along both sides, end quote. I wonder, what is he talking about? I kid, it's the Grand Canyon, of course. They, if they went straight south, they would run right smack into the north rim of the Grand Canyon. And if they did indeed just follow the Hurricane Cliff straight south towards the Colorado River and ultimately the Grand Canyon, it would truly be a very difficult and long journey. And not far from here, um, this spot near Colorado City on the border of Utah and Arizona, my wife and I spent many bumpy and jaw-shattering hours driving to that north rim of the Grand Canyon. We'd stay the night at the campground that is a short walk from the dizzying Toro Yep lookout. And that lookout features a sheer, straight down to the water, 3,000-foot drop. I am not exaggerating the dizzying part. It is the sheerest drop in the entirety of the Grand Canyon. I have videos of it up on my YouTube channel, and also uh, I will have some on the website. Be warned. Your palms may sweat while watching the videos. It really is just one of my favorite places on the entire planet. Although, as usual, it's getting crowded, and there are rules, and you have to sign up, and you gotta pay, and... Uh, the Spanish then gave these men uh, two knives for the information and some glass beads, and then they were promised even more if they showed them the way across this chasm. Instead, they said, We will tell you the way, but we cannot show you. Plus, we're barefoot. And again, like we said, it is rough terrain. Despite the Padres distrusting these men because they believed the treacherous Hopis had gotten to them, and were leading them astray, much like the Utes had done with Rivera, and possibly with d &E earlier. Much like with these examples, Dominguez and Escalante were leery of believing them, but nonetheless, they accepted their guidance anyways. But one more effort at a true guide was offered when they said they would cut leather from their saddles and make sandal bottoms for them if they needed it. At this Two of the men agreed to take them a good ways ahead, although we're not sure if they received their sandal bottoms or not. At this point, I gotta wonder what I would do. I'll walk a mile in their moccasins. I'm in my own territory, which I know very well, and I'm with some friends, probably coming back from a recent trading mission since they had the turquoise and shells from the Pacific. I mean, the turquoise wasn't from the Pacific, but... I'm there minding my own business on a mini vacation away from the kids and wife or wives and all of a sudden my buddies and I see some of the men we've heard about from our Ute and Hopi and Mojave trading cousins. 
We've heard the nightmare stories. And we've heard that they've changed. We know they still take slaves, but they also trade. We know they war with our neighbors, but these guys look peaceful. Would I bother going up to them? I mean, I know I would. But would some of my friends agree to also come with me, or would I have to persuade my friends even further? Coax them some. And then, after three hours of sign language, would I agree to extend my training expedition and take them through what is no doubt the harshest and hardest terrain in their land? I think I would, maybe. Not everyone would, obviously. It's interesting to put ourselves in their moccasins. Both the Spanish and the Indians. The Spanish, out of food, out of ideas on where to go, were no doubt desperate for some guidance. Maybe that desperation bled into their pleas for a guide. Maybe it helped these two Indians say yes. But these Indians' patience was quite limited. As the Spaniards followed the two Perusi, they traversed narrow cliff ledges barely wide enough for a horse or a mule. It took them half an hour to get three of these beasts through the pass. Then the rocky cliff they were attempting to climb, which today is known as Rock Canyon, to give you an idea of its terrain. But the canyon was so rough that they felt like they could not reach the top. It's at this point, after this tough traveling, it was here while ascending the cliff that the two guides made it to the top, looked down and saw the pathetic progress, noticed the starvation and the weakness, and after that they just fled. They probably sat around a few minutes, watched the struggle, and then said, to heck with this, Thanks for the knives, but we are going to head out. I don't blame them. Or, they could be in on the master plan to confuse the Spanish into not coming back. If there even is a master plan. Unable to continue following the guides, because they were gone. They had vanished. Unable to continue, the members of the expedition retraced their steps all the way down where they made camp probably feeling a bit dejected and definitely feeling hungry. They took stock of their surroundings, realized they had no water and no food, and they made the difficult decision to kill and eat a horse. But because there was no water, probably necessary for cleanly butchering and preparing the horse, they decided to postpone that killing. No food. The end of that day's entry in the journal reads, quote, Today, in so painful a day's march, we only advanced one league and a half south. End quote. The journal's notes by Ted J. Warner reads, quote, They were in such dire straits and so tired, hungry, and disappointed after this day's travel that they neglected to honor this campsite with a name. They made less than four miles progress that day. End quote. On the next day, the 17th, they began moving south like the friars had wanted all along. They were traveling next to the Hurricane Cliffs at a spot that would later become Old Temple Road. Briggs writes of this spot, quote, They were squarely on what would become the Old Temple Road, beaten deep in the 1870s by Mormons hauling timber from Mount Trumbull to the southeast for building their temple at St. George, Utah, to the northwest. End quote. I've been on that road. I've also been on and traveled up the dugway carved into the side of those cliffs, 
which is probably the same route the Padres would take shortly. Although I guess I traveled down the dugway. Now, along these washes, they had water, and with the water, they had food in the form of some edible plants. Therefore, they did not kill the horse. Yet. Although, M&P, the old man that he was, strong and wise old soldier, mind you, but old man nonetheless, because of the lack of food for over a day, and probably the seeds before that, because of his age and lack of food, he was so weak he could barely talk. It seemed the edible plants weren't enough. The faith of the expedition's leaders was being tested at this stretch of the journey. And like Job, it would continue to be tested. For it was here they would discover some treachery was afoot. Since the Don Mierda y Pacheco was so weak and hungry, they decided to search the packs for any more food, any scraps at all. What they found along with the breadcrumbs they were expecting was squash, given to quote-unquote the servants. No doubt the two stowaways. But they found squash that had been given to whomever the servants were by the previous day's Perusi Indians. In secret. Another betrayal. Regardless of how they were come across, these squash, the team boiled them down and shared them with those truly in need, like the Don. But I mean, all of them were probably in need at this point. During this cooking, though, two servants, probably the ones who had the food hidden, snuck away without permission, hiked towards the hurricane cliffs, climbed the 1,000-foot side of said cliffs, and returned with great news, and all within only a few hours. That great news was, first of all, the climb was easy, don't worry. Secondly, at the top, the ground is level and good, and probably filled with water. And lastly, don't quote me, I say, but we're pretty sure we saw the Colorado River up there. The Padres were not impressed, and frankly, flat out didn't believe them. They saw rat through the ruse, and they remembered the other times they'd been deceived by their guides. Which means it may have been the Munoz brothers? Maybe, I'm actually, I have no idea who the journal refers to as the servants. Surprisingly, everyone else wanted to change direction and head up the cliffs with them. But the Padres wanted to continue south especially after learning that the Perusi had lied to them about the difficulties of going in that southerly direction. Because up to this point, it had been easy, and they were told it would be hard. Now, me having actually gone that direction, it is incredibly difficult, and they would have ran right smack into, if not Toroyap, the area around there, which is just a straight, sheer 3,000-foot drop. But, ever the diplomats... Since everyone else wanted to go north and up the cliffs, they decided to agree. As I said a minute ago, I have been up there on top of the Vincaret Plateau, where the Padres are wandering now. Although I was coming from the other direction, and my wife and I went down the cliffs, not up them. We also used my Tacoma, not horses and mules, and our feet. At one point, I had pulled over in the cool green pine forest at the top of the world to pee and take a deep breath of that clean, clean air. My wife and I had hiked to the edge of the canyon that morning at Torweep. We'd taken pictures of the sun rising through the smoky fog of the steep, deep chasm. 
We'd hiked to black lava rock boulders that sport snakes and spirals, carved in them by the ancient ones. I saw the plaque mentioning the Mormon pioneers who cut the old forest down to build the beautiful and necessary for Mormon salvation, temples. At that time, I didn't know we were tracing the steps of these old, hardy, brave Spaniards and the rest of the expedition, which were also brave and hardy. In the end, the Perusi were absolutely correct, and if they had continued south, the going would have gotten impossible. Although, the going in the direction they choose to go now will also seem at many times to be impossible as well. So up, they went to the top of the hurricane cliffs by way of a rough and stony wash. At camp, two of the team members, the journal doesn't say who, and it is not the Munez brothers, but two of them went in search of the water they thought they had seen from their quote-unquote ascent to the top earlier. That day, they would traverse more Malpais, or uh, bad country, bad ground, black lava rock-filled land. They would traverse more Malpais until it was time to camp, which they did with yet again no water. To remedy this, the same scouts suggested they go on ahead and look for more water, and don't worry, we'll be back. The next morning, the morning of the 18th, they still were not back. So, in a surprising decision for the first time on the trip, the fathers and the rest of the team didn't even bother looking for him. They just packed up and left the scouts out in the wilderness. Escalante muses in the journal that it didn't matter anyways, because no doubt, these scouts were off with the Perusi Indians from the day before, eating and drinking and being merry. A prescient conclusion. The team, despite having a, by now, seriously sick Don Mierre Pacheco, despite that, the team continued to push south towards the Colorado River. While on the trail, though, they came across five Indians, but four of them fled quickly. But with much pain and perseverance, Dominguez, Escalante Munez, and Joaquin all clamor after the lone Indian who was, quote, making a thousand gestures to show he feared us very much, end quote. But eventually, they catch up to him and surround him, and then they embrace him and calm him down. Then, this exchange, which I'll quote from Briggs, occurs. Having now recovered his composure, the lone Indian asked, Do you want to see the others? The friars replying, Yes. This brave, brave, laid down bow and arrows, took Munez by the hand, and together they brought out the others. Water is near, they said. Show us where, the friars begged, holding out a swatch of woolen cloth. The Indians first turned to Joaquin. How have you dared come with them? Joaquin wanting to rid them of their fears in order to relieve the privation which, greatly to our sorrow he was suffering, answered them as best he could. Greatly surprised at his valor, his Indians, too, quieted down. Indeed, through travail and turmoil, Joaquin appears to have been a quiet young Spartan, a Kipling's Kim in his resourcefulness. End quote. Kim is a novel by Rudyard Kipling that was published in 1901, I learned. It depicts the character Kim's travels through India during what's known as the Great Game between Russia and Great Britain. It was kind of like their own Cold War back in the day as they vied for imperial territory, although the leaders of the empires were cousins. And actually, I saw a picture recently, and they look exactly the same. 
So, you know. The novel takes place between Great Britain's second and third Afghan war, which is kind of like their own war in Afghanistan. Wait. Well, spoiler alert, uh, they lose both those wars. Thankfully, uh, the United States of America learned from England and learned from the Soviet Union and honestly the many other moguls and warlords that failed before them. And we never invi- uh, Never mind. From here, the expedition was led by these Indians who questioned Joaquin's allegiance to his own, but they were taken to an arroyo which held two deep pools. First, drank the men until they could no longer, and then the beasts drained the rest. After the horses had turned the watering hole dry, their new Paiute friend was quite alarmed when he learned that not only was the expedition out of water, but also out of food. In this geography? The leader of the group then offered that two of the Spaniards, or their companions, go to their camp where they may receive some provisions from their new Indian friends. So off Joaquin and one of the Hinizaros, it is not known which one, but off the two went with these locals to grab what would ultimately be wild sheep meat, prickly pear cactus cakes, and seeds. Lots and lots of seeds. They were at this moment very near a place I have been to and love. I mentioned it earlier. They are near the 8,000 foot Mount Trumbull. And I mentioned earlier with the white lizard and spiral petroglyphs on the black lava rocks of Nampawiyap, very near that deep and steep sheer cliff of Toroia, that grandest of all canyons. So Don Emmett P. would later mark this encampment of great importance to our team on the map, on the map that he would draw. Also about this encampment, Dominguez and Escalante's hunch had been correct, and the two who had ran away in the middle of the night were found with these Perusi, or with these Paiutes. They would eventually rejoin the group, but it is not known when. Although it was probably with the 20 other Indians that eventually came to camp in order to sell seeds and cakes and more, although unfortunately no meat. When asked if they could secure a guide, they were told yes, but you must not leave this camp until tomorrow after midday. The Padres agreed. They were full. They were thankful. They were blessed. The Indians had saved their bacon, and it would not be the last time. Sure enough, the following afternoon, many more Indians returned, and among them, two Mescalero Apache, who were apparently friends to the Paiutes, but not friends to the Spaniards. Briggs writes this of of the encounter, but he begins by quoting Escalante's words. So there's a couple quotes in this Escalante says, His features were not very pleasing, and he was distinguished from the rest of the Indians by the disgust which he showed at seeing us here and by the greater display of animosity, which we noticed he was purposefully showing. Briggs then writes, After all, various Apache tribes had been at war with the Hispanos for the better part of a century and a half. Mescalero comes from Mescal, a small cactus that was eaten by many Indians, the Pueblos included, over a wide, semi-desert region. The term Mescalero eventually would become identified with a more easterly Apache tribe, 
Its reservation in our day is in south-central New Mexico. In our expedition's day, Mescalero Apache was applied to some western Apaches. Escalante had related, we recall, the threat of Gila and Mescalero Apaches along his return route from the Helpy Mesas. A Mierda map drawn earlier this year had placed Mescalero Apaches in the Hopi vicinity. End all quotes. That Mescalero Apache Reservation is near the absolutely gorgeous mountain town of Ridoso, under the gaze of Sierra Blanca. I love that spot, and actually my family spent my father's 60th birthday there this year, and my wife and I actually hung out at Inn of the Mountain Gods, the Mescalero Apache Reservation Casino. It is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. But that is a long way, both physically and temporarily, from our story now. The Spanish, ecstatic with being given food, bought all that these Indians had brought with glass beads. These Indians called themselves the Yubuim Cariris. They would later be known as the Yuinkarets Paiute of the Pine Sitting Place. The Yubuim Cariris then claimed they lived across the Colorado River from a tribe they called the Ancamuchis, but who were probably the Hualapais, who to this day are neighbors of the Havasupai, a.k.a. the Cosninas. They were oh so close to finding these Cosninas, and by extension, Garces. If only that blasted canyon wasn't in the way. Near them were also the Mojave tribe, the place was awash in a plethora of American Indian cultures, really. But one culture that may have made an important impact on the crew in this moment was the Apache. Those two Apache mentioned specifically. And they may have pressured these Yubuim Kariris into not giving them a guide or the proper way to reach and then forward the mighty Colorado River. At least that was the Padre's take on these Paiutes, flat-out refusal to guide them properly. And they may have been on to something. These Apaches, or maybe even the nearby Hopi, may not have wanted anything to do with this party of foreign devil Spaniards traipsing through their land. As I just hinted at, the Indians gave the Spaniards confusing directions and confusing hints at distances to the places they were wanting to go to. And even more troubling, confusing places to ford the great river they were about to come upon. That night, after the feast, Don Mierda had a stomach ache, to put it mildly. Maybe he ate some bad seeds or meat, or maybe after being so starving he ate too much. A definite danger. After some twists and turns, they crossed the Kanab Creek, about six miles south of modern-day Fredonia. In March of 23, my wife and I stayed in Kanab before traveling through Fredonia. This time, I was aware of the Potter's journey and was intentionally following their path for this here episode. From Kanab's Adventure Hub, we traveled Highway 89 south and then up near Jacob's Lake, and that was the route the expedition would have been very near as they traversed the area as well. But that morning's journey for my wife and I was cold, windy, and snow-filled and bleak. It was not an area where one would easily find water or food or really anything. 
unless you melted the snow that sat near the entrance of the north rim of the Grand Canyon. So I understand when on the 22nd, Escalante wrote of crossing the plateau that they had, quote, plenty of difficulty and fatigue experienced by the horse herds because it was very rocky, besides having many gulches, end quote. It took me hours to drive up and over and through the Kaibab Plateau with the Vermilion Cliffs to my left. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like for these tired and hungry and cold and thirsty men, especially the sickly Don M&P, who was getting sicker by the minute. While traversing the Kaibab Plateau, just ever so north of the north rim of the Grand Canyon, the team sent the two interpreters ahead to maybe, hopefully, find some Indians with whom they could beg for more food and knowledge from. So when they saw some fires up ahead as night fell, they figured it was their interpreters, who had not yet made it back, and maybe they were making camp for themselves. When the entire Spanish team and their horses snuck up on them and lumbered into their camp during the conversation, the Paiutes, or most of them, as had been happening during a good number of these encounters, but the Paiutes up and scattered into the darkness with fright. What was left were three men and two brave women who were apparently begging themselves. Except they weren't begging for food, but for Joaquin the Laguna Ute to stay with them and they were begging for peace. Escalante records that they told Joaquin, quote, Little brother, you belong to our very own kind. Do not let these people with whom you come kill us. End quote. Eventually, the Padres' usual placations of peace and love calmed down the Indians, and they offered the group some roasted rabbit and some nuts before leading them to a spring where the horses could drink. You know when you're out there driving or hiking or wandering? One wonders how on earth anyone survived out there, like the American Indians for so long. But it starts to make a little bit more sense how they survived once you realize knowing where all the water is located certainly made life a lot easier. And life at camp that evening was easy. Briggs writes, quote, The friars stretched out on their poncho blankets to the songs of an Indian. End quote. The songs of an Indian being, end quotes, themselves. But not all is as it seems. That night, their camp was only 25 miles north of the Grand Canyon's north rim. They were so close, yet still so far away. They wouldn't reach the river for four more days. That landscape truly is harsh. Well, the landscape And occasionally the leaders of the expedition, Dominguez and Escalante, could also be harsh. Because that night, the night of the 22nd of October, the religious leaders caught the very, very sick M&P in the midst of a blasphemous ordeal with an elderly Paiute, who was, quote, set about to cure him with chants and ceremonials, end quote. That singing they heard as they went to sleep, it turns out, had been a healing ceremony by the Paiute Indians on their senior companion. Actually, I just received a book. I bought a book on my trip to Rito, so... uh, It's by John Kessel, Mieta y Pacheco, a Renaissance Spaniard in the 18th century New Mexico. I'm splitting this episode up because kind of I bought this book, but the opening of the book talks about this exact scenario. This is the preface. 
by John Kessel. One October night, an ailing scout, 86 days on the trail and uncertain of where he was, lay moaning in the closeness of an Indian hut while an old Paiute shaman chanted and performed curing rites over him. He had been suffering stomach cramps most of the way, this small, weathered white man. Pain showed in his tired blue eyes. He did not doubt the healing genius of the native peoples. His mixed-blood trail mates, most of them traders with the Utes of the Southern Rockies, squatted around him. I thought that painted the scene pretty well when I read that yesterday, opening the book for the first time. I'm excited to read it and then talk about it in the next episode. Because, again, I split this one up into two. So my episode on Dominguez Nescalante has now become a five-part series on Dominguez Nescalante. I hope everyone's enjoyed it. But um, let's get back into this, this part of the story here. This curing ceremony was the ultimate betrayal to the friars. I mean, it was, it was the biggest betrayal of the whole expedition. How could their companions, their good Christian Catholic companions, succumb to such savage, barbarous Indian superstition? Apparently, some among the crew, and probably, although it is not specifically stated, but probably Miera y Pacheco, but some of them had asked the Paiutes if there was anything they could do for their teammate, who was in such bad shape, and who had been going for six days now in, in bad shape. Surely the locals, the people, knew some tricks of the land that would save his life, right? I'm sure the Paiutes knew of some herb or tincture or concoction that they could make that would cure him, and maybe they gave it to him before they commenced with their idolatrous, devilish ceremonies and chantings. I mean, I, I kind of believe they did, because as Roberts wrote, quote, Intriguingly, though Escalante never says that Miera felt better after October 22nd, there are no more entries recording the victim's illness. Maybe Paiute medicine, or the placebo effect, had done the trick. End quote. But M&P doesn't get better right away. And this sneaking away from the religious to seek out native cures was absolutely the largest betrayal that anyone could have done to the leaders of the group. Those leaders being Dominguez and Escalante, of course. This act absolutely caused the worst and most vitriolic outburst from the two Padres on the entire expedition. Nothing else came close to the anger that uh, D&E felt, or at least Escalante recorded, at this action on the entire trip. Or at least, you know, nothing else was written in the journal that came close to it. Not the earlier betrayal that was left unwritten, way back in episode two. Not the trading of the beads for personal gain. Not the losing of the horses. Not even the guides who abandoned them days before but had been found. Nothing made the fathers more filled with righteous anger than this asking of the devil to intercede into their divine and holy expedition. Although, it does seem, and the torrent of anger that Escalante writes in the journal about this episode, it does seem he ties all the bad things that have happened to them so far with the crew mingling inappropriately with the American Indians. Whether or not they really berated M&P and the others for hours and preached to them about the evils of allowing the devil's influence into the camp, whether or not Dominguez and Escalante actually told them that they were, quote, extremely grieved by such harmful carelessness, end quote. 
whether or not they really commenced to reprimanding and instructing them, quote, in doctrine so that they would never again lend their approval to such errors, end quote. Whether or not they wasted the time to scold these adults, their seniors, on the morning of the 23rd is unknown, at least without a time machine. But Escalante sure does document the fact that they did. But honestly, he writes that they said way more than that. And they were really, really mad, apparently. But Briggs writes of the whole ordeal, and he wonders if this was more Escalante, who couldn't stand the Hopi in their apostate ways. He wonders if maybe Dominguez wasn't as worried. He writes, quote, one wonders if the friar's reaction was mainly the younger Escalantes. In an essay on Pueblo ceremonials, Dominguez would describe such singing as a gabble of voices, accompanied by the soft beating of the tombe, onomatopoetic like tom-tom, and the dancing as resembling contradances or minuets. Taking exception only to the scalp dance as being tainted with the idea of vengeance, Fray Francisco said other rites do not appear to be essentially wicked or to conceal further malice or superstition beneath the superficial trappings. For all his rigidity in churchly matters, he seems to have accommodated himself to the compromise of the changing times with Pueblo culture. He may have joined Escalante in censure, not so much out of antipathy for the Paiute curing rite, as for the Hispanos having joined it. Whatever, Escalante here entered in the diary those comments about the long past conduct of some companions among the Cebuanas, the vile commerce in skins, the alleged interpolation into Dominguez's sermon on baptism, the brutal satisfaction of sex, and so in every way they blaspheme the name of Christ and prevent, or rather oppose, the extension of his faith. Oh, with what severity ought such evils be met! May God in his infinite goodness inspire the best and most suitable means. One would hate to have faced juror Escalante in the Inquisition. End all. Quotes. Added quote. Quite a bit there from... Uh, Escalante, or I guess Briggs quoted from Escalante quite a bit there. Hopefully you were able to keep up with all of that. In reality, the Paiutes may have seen M&P themselves and offered to help. Even if they didn't, though, I'm sure these men of the expedition, I'm sure some of them had significant dealings with the Indians and knew that the Puebloans, at least, back in Santa Fe and around that area, they at least had he ways of healing that the friars may not approve of. So what on earth is the big deal? Well, to the friars, this wasn't about the earth. It was about eternity. And inviting the devil into the camp and into their hearts harmed not only the salvation of the expedition, but also the eternal salvation of the fathers and of the eternal salvation of all the members of the expedition. You gotta remember that the times these people were living in, while not 180 degrees from us, the times these Spanish and religious were living in were still very different from ours. They believed that God was in everything, all around them always. They believed that life was an eternal struggle against the forces of Satan and darkness, and one of those forces were Indian, or any culture to these Catholics. Those dances weren't culture to them. It was the devil sneaking into the Spaniards' lives through the neighbors' quote-unquote evil actions. They held a completely different, and while it seems irrational to us, they held a completely different and opposite view of how we see things today. 
They believed the devil was real and that only God and his son could save us. And they believed that the devil was in these pagan rituals and these Indian ceremonies. And that included this very particular healing ceremony. So by participating in this curing ceremony, they had brought great eternal damage and danger to the entire expedition, which forced the fathers into this very lengthy tirade against this apparent stupidity and sin. Escalante eventually concluded his entry by speculating that if these men, and most other Spanish in general, all all around the world, but if they were left to their own devices among the Indian infidels for, say, three or four months with no one to correct or restrain them, they'd absolutely fall into idolatry and be lost forever. On the 23rd, the crew stayed a day at camp so that the locals could get accustomed to them. That's what he wrote. But also probably to allow the dawn to heal up. But not only the dawn, M and P, but also a few others. It seems those grass seeds they were given was making the expedition a little sick instead of nourishing them. Briggs writes of this, quote, And Dominguez was so troubled by a pain in his rectum, nothing like intimate detail, that he couldn't move. In almost three months' travel, Fray Francisco and Mierda now had each been felled twice, while the ailing Escalante recorded not a single debilitating bodily complaint for himself. The wilderness, be it recalled, would make a whole man of a sickly Theodore Roosevelt. End quote. I talked about that way back in Buffalo Kingdom, I think, how Teddy Roosevelt was asthmatic and weak and a nerd. Maybe I'm mixing this up with Danielle Bellelli's episode over Theodore Roosevelt. Anyways, Teddy Roosevelt going out into the wild, it heals him up. It gets him better. Owning his ranch lets him forget about that very sad day that he marked with an X in his, in his journal. I always feel healed when I go out into the wilderness, which is quite often, actually. Even more now that I'm married than when I was single. I mean, part of that is probably because I live in Southern California for now. But back to this story. Uh, Also, on the 23rd, on that day, out of necessity and starvation, the expedition finally slaughtered and ate the horse they had planned to all those days ago. And what they could not eat, they cut up in preparation to carry with them in a jerked form. Well, most likely. This also probably hampered their leaving that day. They got a lot done, it seems, which is good because the coming days are going to be rough. I've said it before in a previous episode, but I have eaten horse in Besançon, France, and it was delicious, like sweet beef. But I imagine killing one that you know you may need for survival later was a much tougher decision than just ordering it from a menu. But the food that Garces so loved, according to his friend in that letter I quoted way back in the intro episode... But the Indian food of seeds the Dini crew had been given wasn't doing wonders for the Spaniards' health. Eventually, that day, that same day, a lot happened that day, eventually on that same day, 26 more Paiute Indians would show up and hang out with these wanderers in their strange land. These Paiutes, they called themselves the Pagampachis, the Cane Spring People. Obviously, Escalante and the butt-hurt Dominguez 
preached to the newcomers. But this time, they threw in a whole bunch of preaching against their, quote, superstitious curing of their sick, end quote. Of course they did. He went on to say, We made them understand that they should seek help in their troubles only from the one and true God, because His majesty alone has power over health and sickness, over life and death, and is able to help everyone, end quote. I can't imagine these Pagampachi Paiutes made a lick of sense about any of this preaching. But the fathers continued, and apparently, Escalante commented that their new converts listened with pleasure. Yet again, they promised to one day return to teach and preach. Alas, it would not happen. When not preaching on that busy day, the two groups were entertaining each other, and also, they finally learned where the Kosninas were. They even used that word, Kosninas. They also told them where the best place to cross that mighty Colorado River was. In return for the information, the expedition handed out strips of red cloth, and then one brave guide agreed to take them to the ford. Shortly afterwards, the 25 other Pagampachis disappeared. Then the expedition, along with this man, this brave one who decided to guide them, who didn't even stay long enough to be renamed, began their journey. But the Paiute got so frightened that he quickly fled. Although some in the group wanted to restrain him physically, the Padres disallowed it and they let him go. The Holy Ghost, it seems, would be leading them to and across the Colorado River, God willing. They soon came around the Pariah Plateau, a place filled with wonders and magic moments in geology and geography. The Wave, the Coyote Buttes, Grand Gulch, Edmayer's Secret. They were now following the Vermilion Cliffs, or at least right below them. And the Vermilion Cliffs is a place I love and cannot wait to explore a whole lot more. I just wish... Didn't require so much red tape. Thanks, NPS. The last time I was there at uh, the Vermilion Cliffs area, that dang record-breaking winter storm stopped my wife and I from exploring uh, those wonders I just mentioned, both natural and ancient man-made, because there are some, some ruins up there. As our expedition walked, Cisneros would attempt to go ahead of them and to find the river. He would return after midnight and report that he did indeed find it, but he wasn't sure if they could actually cross it. And there it is. They had finally reached the Colorado River. Again. This time they knew it was the Colorado River. And this time, it was at those giant canyons. I don't, they're not quite at the Grand Canyon, but they, they kind of avoided that. But still, they're at Walnut Canyon. Well, you know what? I'm going to get into it. Briggs describes the area wonderfully. So I'll use an extended quote from him. He, meaning Cisneros, he had made his observation in Marble Canyon to be named by Colorado River explorer John Wesley Powell in 1869 for, quoting John Wesley Powell, one great bed of marble a thousand feet in thickness. Cisneros' forbidding terrain included a crest of which Powell would say, The echoes are so remarkable that we could call it nothing but Echo Peak, 
Again, I am absolutely doing an episode soon over John Wesley Powell. That's That was me, that was not Briggs. Briggs continues. Mountains and ridges hereabout are sedimentary deposits of ancient seas, rich in marine fossils, and of winds that blow sands to this day. Through eons, the swelling beneath the earth's surface has pushed them ever upward in the elephantine wrinkling that Escalante observed. Indeed, like the Sangre de Cristo, they are rising even now. He continues. After a stretch in which the expedition's animals broke through surface gravel and, quote, sank to their knees, we arrived at the Rio Grande de los Cosninas. Tizon. Buena Ruya. Buena Esperanza. The Rio Grande de los Martires. And Los Mestidios. And Appalachians more. After all these days of pointing toward the Colorado, Escalante, the Sphinx. Still Briggs. He's, he's a great writer. About 12 million years ago, water began trickling south from Wyoming, pushing sand and gravel. It hewed through plateau until it became a stream, through mountains until it became a river. Vagrant tributaries carved canyons until the river was honed into a Paul Bunyan ripsaw. In places, the Colorado has cut 6,000 feet deep to basement rock, a crust from some 2 billion years ago when our planet's molten surface finally hardened. As its parent land rises, the Colorado is grinding ever deeper. No river on earth runs so deep, so far, which is for much of its 1,700 miles. If left alone again, it would overrun and destroy man's ephemeral dams in the twinkling of a geological eye. There was no Colorado mystique in our wayfarer's eyes. Like San Francisco Bay and Portolaz, it was simply a barrier. Unlike the Monterey colonizer's obstacle, this was one that had to be crossed. And all quotes. Man, and Briggs can write. I love the Colorado Plateau. I, I've mentioned Portola and his Monterey discovery in the intro episode. Also of note, the Colorado River has more dams than any other river in the United States with 15 in total. 15 dams. But how many dams are in the United States? 84,000. 84,000 dams in the United States. They actually reached the river at the confluence of the Pariah and the Colorado River. A beautiful place. And it is named today Lee's Ferry. And Lee's Ferry has some pretty interesting history attached to it that I would be very remiss to not go into just a little bit of detail. Well, okay, a lot of bit of detail. The place at the confluence of the Pariah and the Colorado River, where they are at right now, is named after a man named John D. Lee. And he came to that site of modern-day Lee's Ferry in 1870 so that he could help Mormons who wanted to cross the Colorado from Utah into Arizona to spread the state of Deseret. John D. Lee was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints himself, and had been essentially since the beginning of the religion. He'd been friends with Joseph Smith, the founder, and he was adopted by Brigham Young, the second prophet and leader of the church, after Joseph Smith's martyrdom in prison. Although, John D. Lee's last words would be spent denouncing Brigham Young. Back in Missouri, though, in the 1830s, John D. Lee had been a part of something called the Danites, 
and that was during the Mormon War of 1838, the first of three Mormon Wars in that area. The Missourians really did not like the Mormons. On one hand, you can't blame them, but on the other, they went a little too far. But in this secret fraternal order, the Danites, which, by the way, was condemned by church leaders, but in this vigilante group, one was expected to defend the members of the church by whatever means necessary, including violence and murder. At the time, there was a lot of tar and feathering and murdering and raping of Mormons by those non-Mormon Missourians who were fearful of this, I mean, what they call devilish cult, and it's extremely rapidly rising influence in the region, influence and money and immigrants from across the sea. During that time, most of these secret combination members would be excommunicated during their own lives, although they would be brought back into the faith after death. So John D. Lee was a secret vigilante militia member who eventually ended up in Utah with the rest of the church, where he would later dress up as a Paiute Indian and attack an Arkansas party of far west California-bound settlers known as the Baker-Francher Party, who were camped at Mountain Meadows. Yes, John D. Lee took part in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. At the time, there was the whole Utah War where the United States government sent the army to invade the territory of Utah. Shocking, I know. The United States invading a sovereign nation. Well, because of the fears of annihilation and also because of the fact that some Arkansians, Arkansasians, some people from Arkansas had killed a Mormon apostle a couple years before, because of that, things got out of hand and the Mountain Meadows Massacre resulted in 120 dead and 17 children taken by the church. Maybe I'll do an episode over the incident one day. I definitely should. There's a lot of information and probably factually incorrect things out there and a lot of just incredibly important historical things. I mean, this was during the expansion. This was manifest destiny. And the Mormons were in the way. John D. Lee, for his part... Uh, in the massacre, would eventually be killed by a firing squad in 1877 at the very site of the 1857 massacre. Rather poetic. He'd actually be the only one found guilty of the massacre. Afterwards, one of Lee's 19 wives took over the ferry before the church eventually bought it. And then gold was found in the area later, this same area where the D&E crew were now trying to cross. And by the 1920s, a giant steamboat had been brought into Marble Canyon at Lee's Ferry, where it promptly sank. And you can still visit its sunken hole today. Or I guess you can gaze down at it from the banks. I'll have pictures up at the site because I was there back in uh, March. This steamboat, which was brought in to use instead of mules, uh, this steamboat is apparently the largest vessel to have ever floated the Colorado River north of the Grand Canyon. Like I just mentioned, in March of 23, my wife and I drove Highway 89 until we reached this area of Lee's Ferry. We then spent the day at the banks, both above and below where the Pariah River, with its melted, frosty-colored water, meets the green and clear Colorado. In fact, at this spot, the two rivers kept their distinct colors while they were merging, and it looked quite surreal. 
I know the Colorado isn't always green and clear, but it was that day at that precise location. There were tons of swallows diving, fishermen trying to catch a meal, and a few boats rowed by or floated by with excited and tired sun-kissed passengers. It was a beautiful spot with the sheer red and orange cliff walls that tower over the river. On the other bank, across from the parking lot where we had a picnic in the truck bed, were some wild-looking Navajo horses grazing below the geological formation known as Lee's Backbone. I wondered how on earth those horses got there. It was impressive. Well, on the 26th of October, the D&E crew finally made it to this river they'd been anticipating for what seems like weeks. At least since they'd made the decision to turn around. That excitement at reaching, though, was mitigated when they remembered that they also had to cross it. And crossing it wasn't going to be easy especially at this moment when the river was 100 yards across. Something must have been happening upriver, like storms. Well, and the lack of dams makes a a difference. The rarely mentioned hitchhikers, Philippe and Juan Domingo, who they discovered and allowed to tag along way back in August, I talked about in the second episode, they were the best swimmers of the entire party, and it was now their turn to shine. They were tasked with finding out the best way to cross this big, fast-flowing river. So they stripped down naked, stuck their clothes on their head, and attempted to ford. Here's Escalante with the results. It was so deep and wide that the swimmers, in spite of their prowess, were barely able to reach the other side, leaving in midstream their clothing, which they never saw again. And since they became so exhausted getting there, nude and barefoot, They were unable to walk far enough to do the said exploring, coming back across after having paused a while to catch their breath. The two were indeed able to make it back across the no-doubt freezing and strong river, where hopefully they were given some new clothes, although it isn't mentioned in the journal. It appeared to the leaders, Dominguez and Escalante though, that crossing it at this spot, at modern-day Lee's Ferry, wasn't the best way to do it. The Indians had told them the ford was at their waist, yet here it was impossible even on horses. The ford must be further upriver, they assumed. Well, they'd spend the next 11 days looking for that ford and attempting to cross the Colorado. The second attempt to cross the beast was made on the 28th, but this time they used a driftwood raft and 15-foot poles. They also created out of driftwood. The crew of the float, flotilla, the craft, the raft, the crew was comprised of the quote-unquote servants, whoever they are, and Escalante himself. So he's now a sailor. Shortly after setting sail, in air quotes, the poles that they were using, like the boats in Venice, you know, the poles wouldn't touch bottom of the river near the middle. So they ended up floating back to shore downstream. Three tries, three strikes, they were out, although they kept the raft. They then sent out the interpreter, Andres Munez, and his brother Lucrecio upstream to look for a better way to cross it, but if you know the area, 
Just upstream, around the bend, is the famous Horseshoe Bend. And that is a near vertical cliff of 1,000 feet above the water. But it wasn't like they headed up river from camp and then came back. It took them three days to return. And all the while, the group was suffering from hunger and fear. By the 29th, they'd eaten the horse meat, so they ordered another killed out of necessity. They'd also by now named the camp, instead of naming it after some saint or religious name, as they always did, seemingly. They named the camp San Benito de Salsipuedes. I'll let the editor of the journal, Ted J. Warner, who wrote this in the footnotes, explain what that means. Gazing at the multitude of sheer cliffs about them and at the menacing Brown River, they named their campsite San Benito Salsipuedes. A San Benito, to the New Mexican Franciscans of the 18th century, referred to a garish white cassock with colored markings worn by errant brothers as a mark of punishment. Salsipuedes means get out if you can, end quote. Get out if you can in Spanish. There is no Saint Salsipuedes. Around them were the towering, sheer, red and orange Echo and Vermilion Cliffs, not to mention Marble Canyon. Downstream is where today's 89 Navajo Bridge is located, which allows you to just walk across it while staring down at the torrent of water. This obviously did not exist at the time. And upstream of San Benito Salsipuedes, upstream is endless impenetrable sandstone canyons. Clearly, they were frustrated. I mean, it's a beautiful area, one of my favorites in a land filled with beautiful places, but to these Spanish and religious, it was all simply just an impediment. Plus, they really did not think of the landscape in terms of beauty as we do today. For Europeans, that kind of thinking wouldn't come around for a couple more decades, for some, centuries for others. Some people still don't appreciate beauty in nature, honestly. Pictures of this place that I took will be up at the site. It'll help you get a feel for what they were up against in this tough moment. The 31st of October came and went with no sign of their companions, the Munez brothers. The entry is only one sentence saying they waited. Finally, on the 1st of November, the two Munez brothers returned, and they returned with some good news. They had found a way out. The same one Cisneros had seen five days before, but it wasn't going to be easy, and it involved going up and over the mesa and then back to the river. The men's hearts lightened, but their limbs stiffened as they had an exceedingly cold night. I mean, it is November on the Colorado Plateau at this point, and the weather in that harsh place can be brutal in every season. Not to mention, as Briggs put it, their encampment is essentially a wind tunnel. In, these, in the bottom of these canyons. On the 2nd of November, they left that camp at Lee's Ferry, headed up the east bank of the Pariah River, and headed northeast for 17 hard miles. It took them two days. Roberts sums up the journal entry and quotes from it quite nicely when he wrote, Escalante's journal is a laundry list of complaints about the terrain. Quote, Extremely difficult stretches and most dangerous ledges. Cliff-lined gorges. A stretch of red sand which was quite troublesome for the horse herd. 
Such terrible rock embankments that two pack animals which descended the first one could not make it back, even without the equipment. End quote. And then, when at last the team got to the promised ford, the Padres judged it impossible. Escalante, so quick to criticize the guides and experts within his party, was unsparing in his contempt for the brothers Munez. Quote, quoting Escalante, Here we learn that they had not found the ford either, nor in so many days made the necessary exploration of so small a space of terrain, for their having wasted the time looking for those Indians who live hereabouts and accomplished nothing. End all quotes. So, it turns out, the brothers may have told a fib again. And instead of finding a ford and then crossing said ford, they hung out with Indians for three days. Oops. It isn't clear if they actually hung out with the Indians, or if that's just what Deany thought they were doing for three days while failing to find this spot. Plus, when they reached the area of the ford, which again... Reaching this place had been extremely dangerous, with quite a few walks across rounded sandstone fins, kind of like the ones you, you find in Moab or Arches. But once they reached the place of the ford, they weren't actually at the crossing spot, but rather high above it looking down at the spot they were supposed to be able to make it across. And to get down to the river, Escalante didn't even think the animals would make it back up if they couldn't get to the other side of the river at that point. They were 1,700 feet above the river. I mean, it's hard to imagine that distance. It's hard to properly see it, even when you're right there looking at it. But they were in a pickle, and they needed to move, lest they all die right there from starvation and cold. And being 1,700 feet above the water means you're not at the water. The horses can't drink. They needed to make a decision. So Escalante asked their best swimmer, the Genizaro mixed native Juan Domingo, if he would go down and cross again. And he agreed. He climbed down the steep slope, and, only with his shirt, he plunged into the cold water and made it across. Then, probably out of embarrassment, or maybe to apologize for this whole debacle, one of the Munez brothers, Lucrecio, decided he would follow. And he would follow bareback, on a horse, across the river with some supplies, and once on the other side, he'd send up some smoke signals if it all turned out all right, if they found a way. This time, Deany asked him to be back by nightfall. None of this three-day business. The expedition wouldn't make it that long, they didn't think. And night came and went, and no Lucretio or Juan Domingo. No smoke signals, neither. No more horse meat. No water for themselves or the horses. I mean, they could see the Colorado River right there. Down that steep sandstone embankment that was probably a sheer cliffside. It's amazing that Lucretia made it down on a horse, but making it back up? There was severe doubt among D&E that the animals would be able to make it back up. They were now out of the second horse's meat, so they were hungry. Hungry and stuck cold and thirsty and tired on top of a sandstone wall overlooking the Colorado River. And this had been after two days of dangerous and exhausting travel. And they were too afraid to ford the river below, and if they couldn't, they were totally unsure if they'd be able to make it back up with the animals. The desperation they felt seeps through the pages at this point. 
and it doesn't let up. Having to make a tough decision, because they were not going to make it back the way they came. They could not travel back two days that way, back to Lee's Ferry. And D&E decided to go down the very steep, nearly vertical walls of the canyon to get down to the water where the horses could drink and where they could maybe hopefully find a way to ford it. That was now the only option. Plus, they couldn't sit there and do nothing any longer. The waiting was killing them. So, down they went, except, as Escalante puts it, quote, With great difficulty, some of the mounds injuring themselves because when they lost a foothold on the big rocks, they rolled down a long distance. End quote. I do not like the mental image of a horse rolling a long distance down a scree field of near-vertical sandstone cliff. But they did make it down where they drank, slaughtered a third horse, set up camp along the bank, and then began waiting for the two to return, the two they had sent out across the river. Just before nightfall, Juan Domingo would do just that. He would return, except he wasn't bringing good news. Escalante writes, quote, He had found no way out, and at the other one, leaving the horse midway in the canyon, had kept on following some fresh Indian tracks. End quote. It was another no-go. Except Indian tracks meant a way out, right? Well, yes, except that way out may not have afforded horses the same salvation. The following day, they asked the other Munez brother, Andres, to stay there at the bank and to wait for Lucretio, and if and when he returned, to please catch up to them before nightfall. Things were getting desperate. And it ain't like that day's journey would help. If they couldn't make it at this spot, they were going to follow the river up northeasterly, back into modern-day Utah. And they were going to travel until they could find a spot, or better yet, the spot that the Indians had told them about, where they could actually finally cross the water at their waist, at waist level. Where our adventurers are traveling through now on this cold November 5th day is mostly under Lake Powell's water. And do not get me started on Lake Powell and how ill-conceived the entire endeavor was. I mean, sandstone absorbs water and you're going to put a lake on it? In the desert? Drowning tens of thousands of archaeological sites and petroglyphs and caves with artifacts? And then the radioactive mud against the dam from the 26,000 tons of unremediated uranium mill tillings? Thank God this winter was a record-breaking one the winter of 22 to 23, and the lake got a reprieve from being below the spill line. Author Craig Childs actually wrote a piece about it last autumn and how if things go wrong, it ain't going to be pretty for the Southwest at Lake Powell. And there I go, I got myself started. That's all I'll say of Lake Powell. On the 5th of November... They traveled something like seven miles through canyons, arroyos, ridges and gullies, and across soft white rock before making camp. And Andres Munez returned, and with him the bad news that his brother had not returned. As Escalante put it, quote, This news caused us plenty of worry, because he had been three days without provisions and no covering other than his shirt. End quote. So 
So the other Munez brother was out there poo-bearing his way through the cold, rainy, and snowy desert following Indian tracks with no horse and no food and no pants. By now it had rained all day and even some snow had fallen. And I can't help but think hypothermia must be creeping in on Lucrecio. I'm reminded of The Revenant, the movie, and how Leo's fictional Hugh Glass is pretty much wet and cold the entire journey. That movie just makes me cold watching it. I know it's based on a true story, but it's so far removed from the true story that it's fictional to me. But still a great film. I love it. About all of this, Briggs writes, A deserted Lucretio, a lone castaway Hispano, in an ocean of uncharted currents and unfathomed depths, amid peoples as bestial as Jonah's whale. He had to be rescued. End quote. He really is such a fun writer. After learning that Lucretio was still out there, Juan Domingo actually volunteered to go back to the previous camp, cross the river again, and then return with the lost traveler. The fathers were no doubt relieved at this compassionate mission he was about to set out on. The rain stopped on the morning of the 6th after much praying, but it was replaced with a much worse storm. After traveling about seven miles again, they were stopped for a long time, and once they stopped, they began to recite litanies and say their prayers as they were attacked by a, quote, strong blizzard and tempest consisting of rain and thick hailstones amid horrendous thunderclaps and lightning flashes, end quote. God humbles his servants. As anyone who spends time in canyon country knows, you do not go into canyons or near the rivers during storms because those all-important eroding forces of flash floods are truly killer. Despite the deluge and the lightning and the hail, they sent down Don Juan Pedro Cisneros to see if they could ford it, and surprisingly, he said yes. It was really wide, but not very deep, but... There's a really tough canyon in between the camp and the ford spot. The Padres then sent two others to inspect it, and they came back saying, yeah, that canyon is going to be very difficult. Escalante then writes, quote, We did not give much credence to the latter report, and so we decided to examine ourselves next day along with Don Juan Pedro Cisneros. Before night came, the Henizaro arrived at the said Lucretio, end quote. Wait. What was that about Lucrecio? Juan Domingo had brought him back? Uh, he was no doubt a welcome sight, especially for Andres, his brother. But only one sentence in the journal to celebrate his return? Roberts writes of this puzzling brief mention when he writes, quote, For three days, without trousers, Andres Munez's brother, scarcely mentioned in the journal during the three months out of Santa Fe, had crossed the Colorado twice pushed the far canyon along the track of Indian footprints to an unspecified distance, and together with Juan Domingo, followed the onward track of the main expedition through 17 miles of convoluted slick rock canyons and domes. For three nights, the ill-clad Lucretio had bivouacked through rainstorms that had drenched and chilled his comrades, even in their tents and around their campfires. The reconnaissance of these two scouts stands as one of the gutsiest accomplishments of the whole expedition. Yet Escalante deigned it an episode not even worth enlivening with the barest of details. 
since in the end, as a way to cross the Colorado River, the scouts' attempted route failed to find an answer. End quote. Briggs further elaborates, No word of commendation, no word of thanksgiving, and no word of what had kept Munez these three days. End quote. However D&E, especially Escalante, felt about the Munez brothers, they sure did earn their keep here. The following day, November 7th, would be the day they had all been waiting for. The day they no doubt feared would not come at all. But on that day, after hacking steps into rocks with their axes for their horses, and then after climbing down the steep canyon, and then after riding along the banks of the river just a bit, the two fathers and their two awesome swimmer guides crossed the Colorado River. They then sent the two swimmers back across and up the canyon to fetch the remaining members of the team. Briggs writes, Thirteen days after the expedition's coming upon the Colorado at Salsipuedes, its canyon lands had been crossed by white men for the first recorded time at what would become known, in perpetuity, as El Varo de los Padres. End quote. The Crossing of the Fathers. At 5 p.m. that day, after lowering their gear using ropes down the cliffs and negotiating the animals down using those hacked steps and then getting them across the river by, again, 5 p.m., they were all on the other side where they rightfully celebrated by, quote, praising God our Lord and firing off some muskets in demonstration of the great joy we all felt in having overcome so great a problem, end quote. I am here to attest to the power of firing a weapon into the air in the desert in celebration. I did so on my wedding day in Grand Staircase Escalante, National Monument, fittingly. Or, no, I'm sorry, right outside the boundary of the monument, of course, for any NPS listening. Even knowing that the D&E crew made it, make it back to Santa Fe, even I was beginning to question if the crossing of the fathers to the other side of the Colorado River was ever truly going to happen. But thankfully for them, and for our story, they finally did. Unthankfully for our story, the famous steps they hacked into the sandstone wall and the place that they crossed are both now under hundreds of feet of radioactive mud and water at Lake Powell. But in 2006, while some volunteers were scrubbing graffiti from the sandstone wall in a place fittingly known as Padres Bay on said Lake Powell, the volunteers discovered the only inscription ever found to date from the 1776 Dominguez and Escalante expedition. Instead of carving it at the base of the cliff where they made it down, or near the spot where they made the steps, which would be underwater, the Padres carved into the wall hundreds of feet above the river, Paso por aquí, 1776, passed by here in 1776. In 1829, the Spaniard Antonio Mariano Armijo would become the first merchant explorer to lead a commercial caravan from Abiquiu, that last outpost town northwest of Santa Fe, the place our DNA expedition stayed, um, stayed one night or maybe a couple nights in, right after they left Santa Fe. Well, Antonio Armijo would be the first Spaniard to lead a caravan from Abiquiu to the San Gabriel Mission in today's Los Angeles County. Essentially, he would successfully do what 
the Padres could not, although a little further south than Monterey. He was the first European pioneer to complete a route from Nuevo Mexico to Alta California. It took him 86 days, and he would arrive in January of 1830. And he'd write a day-by-day account of his journey, just as our expedition had done. In that journal, our Mijo's journal, he wrote, quote, We stopped the train and repaired the upgrade of the canyon, the same one which has been worked by the Padres. End quote. Fifty-four years later. I have no doubt this man carried a copy of the d journal with him as he completed his mission, the mission, our Padres set out but failed to accomplish. That being said, he may have just enlarged some Mokwai or Anasazi steps, and not the steps made by the expedition, but the fact that Armijo knew of the steps' existence shows the importance of the expedition I have covered in this series. It shows the importance of it to the Spaniards. This expedition, DNA expedition that barely anyone, including me until very recently, knows anything about in the U.S., really, and probably even beyond. I talked to a ranger in Arizona who had never even heard of the expedition. There are some Americans, though, that have historically known of the DNA expedition. 150 years later, in 1935, an American, Dr. Russell G. Frazier, made five trips to the area, and on his fourth trip, quote, Frazier and companions emplaced a copper plaque at the canyon's entrance. It was he who named its stream Padre Creek, end quote. And that quote was, of course, by Briggs, and he describes Frazier's passion of using the DNA journal to find the spot where they crossed. Frazier was chief surgeon for the Utah Copper Company, not a doctor of anthropology or archaeology or history or anything like that. Briggs further writes, quote, Then, on the final trip in 1937, Frazier's son and a brother, quote, pointed excitedly to a sloping wall in which were cut six ancient steps, three yards long or a little less, that, though very badly weathered and not easily seen unless the light is just right, still show traces of having been cut by some steel instrument. He goes on to write, and quoting Fraser again, To stand in the footsteps of the Padres, was to Fraser, who would join the third bird Antarctic expedition, the greatest thrill of my life. End. Fraser quote, The plaque, rescued before the crossing of the fathers, was drowned, is treasured by the Utah State Historical Society. End all quotes. Despite finally being on the homeward-bound side of the Colorado River, the crew weren't out of the woods yet. Before they left their celebrated spot, on November 8th, they slaughtered their fourth horse for food. They were indeed still rather starving, not to mention they were brutally cold. Escalante writes, quote, Tonight we were very cold, more so than on the other side of the Colorado. End quote. They were also, for lack of a better word, lost. Very lost. And confused. You can't really blame them. Canyon country is an absolute maze. There is even an area of Canyonlands National Park just up the Colorado River from these guys that is called the Maze District of Canyonlands. If it has been cloudy this entire time of, of our expedition and with these storms and rain, 
I imagine they were completely clueless as to what directions they were even facing in those canyons half the time. They did, though, blame a lot of this confusion on the fact that the Indians were refusing to help them, but the Indians had no obligation, and they could have been purposefully avoiding them on behalf of the nearby Hopis anyways. You do, though. Again, I know I've mentioned it, but you've got to wonder, where on earth are the Navajo? I mean, how do they not run into any? It's wild. I have no idea. Around this time in the journal, Escalante mentions a landmark I am very fond of. Although, I'm unable to visit it as I am not a Navajo. That landmark would be what Escalante calls Tucan. He calls it that because the Paiuchi Indians, or the Paiutes, call it that. In their language, that means Black Peak. For the crew, it was the only mountain they could see, quote-unquote, close at hand. That mountain also goes by the name Cerro Prieto, in or on Mierda's map, also meaning Black Peak. In another map, it goes by Cerro Azul, which is Blue Peak. Today, it is known as Navajo Mountain. Briggs writes of this beautiful landmark. A 10,416-foot lacolith, surmounting rainbow plateau. It dominates the northern realm of the Navajo Reservation, which chews big bites out of Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. Sacred to the Navajos, it is to be avoided as home of their thunder god. End quote. David Roberts, in his book, Finding Everett Ruiz, says of the mountain, quote, it is one of the lordliest landmarks in the Four Corners region. In Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, you can view it easily from Boulder, Utah, all the way down to the Hole in the Rock Road. You can see it from Escalante, the town. Escalante, I'm sorry. You can see the giant peak from Brass Canyon National Park. It's visible from Muley Point on Cedar Mesa in the Bears Ears area. From... Casa del Eco Mesa in the Four Corners. I mean, the Navajo Mountain is visible from so many places throughout the area. That is my favorite in the world. And it just beckons me to visit. But alas, it is off limits. Within its canyons, the Navajos hid from the Spanish and the U.S. armies. The Anasazi hid there during their civil war. It is one of the most remote regions in all of the Southwest and all of the country and all of North America. It stands next to the Henry Mountains, fairly nearby, and being one of the last places explored by Anglos. The places around the mountain are some of the most rugged in all of the United States, and hidden among the many sharp canyons around it is Rainbow Bridge, which is the largest natural ge geological span in the entire world. Everett Ruiz will explore it, so... Stay tuned for that episode, which is coming after this series. Other past Americans that got to explore the region was frequent podcast guest Theodore Roosevelt, and another man who will have his own episode in the future, Western author Zane Gray. That's right. And yet another man of history who will get his own series very soon, and who I've mentioned before, and who I'll mention again in the Everett Ruiz John Wetherill, that great finder of Anasazi sites and artifacts who would also help, again, Everett Ruiz. Uh, 
John Wetherill blazed many a trail through the area, the first Anglo to do so. And with that, I have decided to make this a five-parter. The rest of the story takes them to Hopi, and then home. And I will talk at length about the epilogue and what happens to our brave expeditionaries, our adventurers, our wanderers in mysterious regions. On my last trip, I bought a book I read from earlier about Mierda y Pacheco. So I will do like a Raiders of the Lost Ark Indiana Jones opening flashback to Mierda y Pacheco's extremely interesting life before going back into the final part of the expedition as they make their way home in this very cold weather. It is still exciting. They go to Hopis and they go to the Hopi mesas and it's interesting what happens there. But I'll also finish up the story in the Southwest. The Spanish have a truly lasting impact not only on the United States but especially in the American Southwest which lasting impact and legacy is all but ignored in the rest of the country. Truly. Well, anyways, I'll see y'all soon again in the American Southwest as we wrap up the Dominguez and Escalante Expedition of 1776.